0: we're going to be opening up our Bibles back to John chapter 3. And it's part of our hope as we go through the gospel of John that we might it might be for us that we see who Jesus is and continue to respond by faith. I think this really lines up with what the apostle John desired when he wrote the, the book, the gospel of John. Now, it's true that for those whether we've already believed or have not yet believed because our desire is to see who Jesus is and respond in faith. So open up to John chapter 3 you can grab it on your phones or in your Bibles or you can follow along in the screen above us. Now I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation where you were kind of in a bind and you needed help desperately. And, and not the uh, you know running out of toilet paper situation but that it can be one of desperation. Um, I remember working on my little Honda at one point and I was replacing the water pump. It's a massive, and I'm not trying to flex here, no, uh, anyways. So my dad will tell you, like he had to, I had to do it twice actually, which is embarrassing, so I'll tell you that. Um, but I remember doing it, I remember w- at one point, I had to turn a wrench and at the same time, I had to put something very delicately into um, like a hose clamp or something. And, and, and it had to be done all at the same time. And I was sitting underneath the car and I'm, my muscles are shaking and I just cannot get this thing done. And what I really needed was help. I need my dad there. Um, I needed somebody to come and just give me a hand. There's nothing more frustrating than being in a situation that turns into a crisis and not having a provision. And I think the best thing for us as we open up to John chapter three is that we will see that we are in a crisis in our lives. We were born in a state of crisis and that Jesus actually has been provided as the greatest provision we could have ever desired. We may not have even known that, but Jesus is the greatest provision ever given to us. So today we're going to walk through the gospel of John in chapter 3. We're going to see a crisis of faith. Then we're going to see a response to that crisis. So check out John chapter 3. We're actually going to start I know it said John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 23 of chapter 2. This is where we left off last week, but they're perfect. It's a perfect transition for this morning. Check out John chapter 2, verse 23. It says Now, when he was in Jerusalem as Jesus at the Passover feast, many believed his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, he knew that not all would profess faith in him just by him doing miracles and signs and and these wonders, but that some might even be wanting to kill him and now that's the context that jesus was in when he was visiting jerusalem that time but he knew his time had not yet come it wasn't time for him to die that was to happen but it wasn't time this would give us the reasoning the background to why nicodemus is going to come to jesus in the dark at night so check out verse one of chapter three it's all about nicodemus now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I, I, I truly believe that Nicodemus was genuinely coming to Jesus, right? Nicodemus was coming to Jesus with a genuine heart wanting to know more about him now while the threat to jesus may have been a precursor to nicodemus coming at night there's a whole nother layer to this that nicodemus coming to jesus at night is demonstrating it's symbolic of nicodemus's own darkness in his heart that he doesn't quite yet he's in the dark he's not yet seen the light right jesus the light coming to the world He is yet to see. He's in darkness. That's why he comes to Jesus at night. And how do I know that? Well, it's all revealed in the next verses. Check out verse 3. Now, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, how does Nicodemus respond? Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb And be born. Now, uh, he's not actually talking literally about being born again into his mother's womb. So Jesus clarifies in verse 5 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it, is, it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, Jesus is here clarifying what he means by this new birth, this rebirth. It's not from reentering your mother, and I think all the moms are sighing Relief at that. That's pretty, pretty bad. To be born again, you must be born what Jesus said of spirit and of water. Now, being a go- born again with the spirit is this idea that the Holy Spirit would come into someone and make them alive. It's very apparent that we see this time and time throughout scripture. We call this idea regeneration. It's the idea that you are dead, that the spirit makes you alive. And then you respond to God with faith. This is something the spirit does. You're born again by the spirit. And he actually links it to being like a a metaphor with like wind. That the spirit blows like wind where it wishes. You don't control wind. Uh, It's incredibly frustrating when you set up a canopy in one spot and the wind starts blowing it over. And you think you change its direction and the wind changes direction again. The the wind blows where it wishes. And the reality is it's it's a statement that our spiritual status is dead on arrival Where it comes to this world. We arrive dead and only God can make us alive once more. So therefore, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, it doesn't matter if you were born A Jew, someone that is Jewish in that time would see themselves as elect. They would see themselves as someone that's chosen. That someone has a right to all the good things that God has for his people. They expect that they were automatically in God's people because they were born like that. But that's flesh. But they had needed not just be born physically, but they had to be born again to their spiritual status. Now, the second part of it is them being born of water. And so this could easily be an illustration or allusion to water baptism. And so some actually claim that. Some say born of spirit, right, is the spirit coming inside, making you alive, giving you the opportunity to have faith in Jesus where the water, they see it as physical baptism. Uh, Baptism is what Jesus underwent in chapter one. So it's it's the immersion of someone underneath water, uh, symbolizing death, and being raised again, rebirth. And so it's actually very well could be. And all around this verse, for that argument's sake, there is baptism. There's John the Baptist, and he keeps baptizing people, and then Jesus the next, next couple of verses, he's going to be baptizing people. So it very well could be being born of water means being baptized. However, I believe that it's actually an idea that's, that's, that's a little further away in chapter four. It's this idea of partaking in the living water of Jesus, being part of the living water. Uh, we're going to see that in the following chapter four's interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. She's going to ask him, uh, he's going to ask her, I'm sorry, for a drink of water. And she's going to say, how do you expect to get water out of the well? It's deep, you don't have anything to draw from. And he said, if you knew who, you, you, who was talking to you, who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you a drink of living water And then she just, her mind's like, what the heck is this guy talking about? But we'll cover that later. But Jesus, I believe, is talking about living water here. You have to take apart something that you would, by partaking in, you are then completely quenched. You have no more thirst. And the woman, the Samaritan woman, will completely miss that. But I believe that's what Jesus is alluding to here. That You must be, being born of water, must be taking in this living water. But either way, no matter which one it is, let's look at Nicodemus' reaction to what Jesus has just said to him. Verse 9 Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? He's completely dumbfounded. This goes against everything he's learned and taught. And he's not just a ruler, he is actually a, one of the teachers of Israel. And that's how Jesus responds to him. Verse 10 Are you, uh, it says, and Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Okay, Nicodemus was kind of a big deal in his time. He was a big deal. He's coming to Jesus at night because he doesn't want anyone else to know. He's coming to Jesus. He is someone that Jesus is actually identifying as the teacher of the people of God. He should know these things, and Jesus is kind of a little bit maybe gaslighting him here. Verse 11 continues, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, right here, Jesus is pointing out Nicodemus' crisis of faith. Nicodemus believes, he, he, he thinks he has faith. But yet he's actually in a point of crisis. See, Nicodemus has come to Jesus desiring to believe. He wants to know who Jesus is. What does he need to do? And here he's dumbfounded by Jesus' response to have a new life, to be reborn, born again. But the reason why he's dumbfounded is because Jesus, the essential element here is that Nicodemus needs faith. And here, faith for Nicodemus is a leap, as it is for all of us. See, trusting something, doesn't matter how much information you have, eventually, at some point, it will take a leap of faith. Um, The reality is, each one of you right now are sitting in a chair. How many of you made some scientific observations about those chairs before you sat down? And maybe you did, maybe you actually saw those and you wondered, can that actually support my weight? but something in you through experience made you sit down and and by sitting down you're putting your full weight into that seat right now and the reality is, is this is the concept this is the idea of what faith is it's putting your full weight into something fully trust now you're you're second guessing your chair i understand but this idea of faith is putting your full weight into something it's trust If that chair were to give away right now, I know you're sitting on benches, but if it were to give away, um, you would fall back. You would feel very uh, um, untrusting of that bench if you ever saw it again, right? But this idea of your full weight is what faith is. When you put your faith into something and there's always a leap. Like if you sat down, if you've ever seen someone second guessing a chair, you know, like they're always kind of like, it's really awkward to watch, right? But at some point they have to let go of the chair and sit down and put their weight in. There's always a leap. It doesn't matter what we're doing. And we're never guaranteed absolute certainty before we take that seat. We see Nicodemus in the state of crisis of faith and Jesus pointing to them that you need to be reborn. You need to have faith. And that's one of the problems for Nicodemus is he can't get past this concept of faith. And this is what we need. We need to trust Jesus by sitting fully in him. The, the, the gospel has been given to us. The good news of Jesus. And this is what we put our faith in. We sit down on the truths of it. Eve, even if at times it's hard. Even at times if it feels unsteady. We sit down. Because that's what faith does. We've seen, seen Nicodemus' crisis. And now we'll see a response. The response is the gospel. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, most of you might see that the text there is in red, right? You might see that. Um, It's typically used throughout the Gospels to help people identify where Jesus is speaking and maybe where other people are. Uh, Not every Bible will have it that way, Um, and it can differ. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not actually Jesus' words or it is Jesus' words. Like you know what I'm saying? Like it's not trying to differ. There's just de- debates on where Jesus maybe stopped speaking. And and when you get into like the original language, it's not as easy as you would probably think. Like I always used to think like, well, in English we have like quotes like you just he said and he quoted. And that's not true necessarily in the text that you would look at in the original. And so it's not so clear-cut as we would assume. But knowing which words are Jesus recorded um, and which ones are not, that saying like, well, then, then we don't have to listen to these because they're not really Jesus' words, or, or we really have to listen to these because they are Jesus' words. I think that's a false assumption about our Bibles. Um, just because something's read or not read doesn't mean we don't take it as God's word. Uh, all of the Bible is God's word, so we, we examine it and understand it and we study it as such and we submit our lives to it. We listen to all that the Bible has to say because all of it is God's word. So I want to say that on the front end (laughs) because I don't know if I completely agree with where the red lettering ends and starts. I think there's a lot of healthy debate on where does Jesus actually stop speaking here. For some of your your versions, um, they're going to have Jesus speak all the way through until verse 21 of the next section, while others will have Jesus stop at verse 15, and the question here is, when does John pick back up his narrative? And we see that even back early on in chapter one. It's like, he's kind of sharing some dialogue, and then all of a sudden, it's like, is John talking again? It's, and we don't have a voiceover, and this is where Jesus left. You know what I mean? Like, it'd be great if that low, powering, booming voice comes in, and we know, oh, we're transitioning. We're seeing B-roll. And okay, we got it, right? Like, uh, that'd be super helpful. But there's a lot of debate on where does Jesus actually stop speaking and where does John take over? And I think it has to do with like the conversation, right? Jesus is talking to him. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. My wife finds it herself regularly in it where you're in a conversation and then someone's like starts preaching to you. And you're like, do I really need to be here? Um, You know, it doesn't seem like Jesus is doing that to Nicodemus. But if we take the red letters all the way through to verse 21, it's like Jesus starts like lecturing him, like long lecture, like I'm doing to you right now. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I believe Jesus actually stops here at verse 12. I believe he said that if you don't believe what, what I say to you that's earthly, how would you believe the heavenly things? I think John then inserts this and begins to proclaim the gospel truth that is to be our response. Verse 13. I believe this is John now just narrating No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now think about that. Jesus sometimes talks about himself in the third person, don't get me wrong, but that's a really weird transition, okay? Not saying it couldn't be Jesus speaking, but it sounds like John's now giving a meta-narrative. He's jumping out and he's describing more about the gospel. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And John's now switching from this, from this metaphor of rebirth to this idea of eternal life. Now, this is going to be a huge theme in John's writing. John's going to talk about the eternal life. Uh, we, we talk about eternal life as the new life, a new creation. It's a life that starts now and goes on forever that Jesus is bringing up a resurrection life, eternal life. Now, this eternal life is made possible by Jesus having to die for God's people. Now, he quotes something from Exodus about a serpent being raised up. Now, back in the Old Testament, Moses and the people of God were in the wilderness, Uh, much like most of us today, our kids, they start complaining and bickering, And a bunch of snakes come out and start biting people. <laughs> so what, what does God do? Moses asks God help for help. God tells Moses to take a serpent and lift him up on a stick. And whoever were, was to look at the serpent would be healed of the venomous, the venomous bites. So they're healed by this one who is lifted up. And Jesus, it's a kind of a precursor to Jesus. It's a, a foreshadowing of, of a Savior who will be lifted up, right? Like a cross. This is important. It's a cure to our ailment. And this is, for Je- this is Jesus. It's the gospel. And it's been given to us that we might believe. Check out verse 16 as it continues. One of the most famous verses, you might be familiar with for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life i love those verses for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not have should not perish but have eternal life this is the epitome it's a kind of a gospel nugget like a little tiny nugget that you would find and it has connection to so much more small reflection verse 17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is not it's not that they are condemned but they are condemned already they're born that way why because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god So what should be our response is belief that we are to look to Jesus alone to be the solution to make us right before God. He's the only one that can take away our sin. He's the only one that can pay the penalty and absorb God's wrath on our behalf. And for those of us who have not yet believed or those people who have not yet believed around you this doesn't take away the compassion we should have towards other people. But we should understand that they remain in a state that they were born in. And that can be tough because as you, as you think about it, you think, how could God love people but allow them to perish? But I believe this is God's grace that he actually saves some. And John continues to explain why this happens. Verse 19 and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because of their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." See, we are born lovers of darkness. We're born under the cover of dark. And for many of us, we've never actually known anything but darkness. But then Jesus steps into the scene. The light come into the world. This is Jesus. And yet when he does this, there are two kinds of people seen. There's two people that are exposed. Those who move towards the light and those who run from it. A long time ago, I uh, heard it best as there's two kinds of creatures. Light exposes the nature of these creatures. It's not to say that one's better than the other. They're both living creatures. But they respond to light differently. And I believe we as humans can do the same thing. As you go on to a, into a house in a dark room and you turn on a light, there's certain creatures that scatter, cockroaches, and there's certain creatures, if you turn on the light, they come to it, a moth. I think in the same way, Jesus is kind of like that. Jesus, Jesus as he comes into the, comes into the scene, he exposes what's already there. People that are being drawn to God or creatures that are running from God. They either love the light or they love the darkness. But what can we do about these things? What, I mean, if you're someone who's like, I love light, but I, but I see people who are lost, and I, I, I love them, and God, God loves them, right? For God so loved the world. What do I do? How do I respond? How do I go after them? I think there's a couple things, but I want to give us uh, these verses from Ephesians chapter 5. Check these out. <clears throat> Very helpful. Ephesians 5 verse 7 says this. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. He's talking about people who are lost in darkness. He's saying, do not become partners. I'm sorry, I said partakers. Partners with them. I think that's a really important, important point. That we're not going to actually come to them and say, hey, let's, let's, let's team up. Let's, let's go after the things that you're desiring. The things that you're trying to hide in. Why? Verse 8 says, for at one time you were darkness. We, we were lost. We, we were hopeless. We were in the dark. We did not even know what was around us. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Here's his encouragement. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It's what light does. If you've ever been in a dark room, walking through, hitting your shins on all the, you know, the, the low tables or the kids' toys are sticking around, the Legos on the ground, and you're know, getting really angry, that's me, light exposes them. You turn them on, you're like, you don't have to step on them anymore, right? And if you've ever been in darkness, if if you know, if you remember back how it was to be lost, it's to be like, I was constantly hurting myself and hurting others. Because you're in darkness. But now that you're in light, you see what is around you for what it is. Verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You're now light. Walk in wisdom, making the best use of time because the days are evil. We can't excuse other people's actions. I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird place to be when you're, you're, you've put your faith in Jesus. Now you're sent back out into darkness. And now what the text is telling us you are light. And what does light do? It exposes. And so there's two options you have. You can either shine bright, right? Or dull, cover up, right? It goes back to that little song we teach kids. I don't know if you know it. This little light of mine, this little light, right? The devil wants to cover it covered up or no, I think don't hide it. And then the devil blows it out or something, right? I don't know. It's been a while. It's been a while, probably a couple nights, but, um, But this idea that we are shining light and there's two options. We can either let it shine bright or we can cover it up. I guess Satan can also blow it out. I don't know. That's the song. But it's the nature of light to pierce darkness, to expose what's there. So if you are walking around with people, you have two options. You can either partake in their darkness and hide your light or you allow it to shine bright. But what's going to happen? gonna expose what they're doing. Do they want to be around you? No, they will not want to be around you, unless and this is the encouragement. They're drawn to light. You're not a perfect person. That—that's the whole point of the gospel, right? That you are broken, you are lost, you are a sinner. And what do sinners do? They sin and guess what you're you're not like you're no longer a sinner guess everybody you don't ever have to sin again no you don't have to sin but you are still a sinner you're given a new identity so that you might live according to that new identity but the reality is is that we are still have sin in our lives we're not perfect people we have a perfect savior so as you're around people they may want that same thing they may want that new life and guess what god through his holy spirit may be drawing them to himself Oftentimes when God's drawing people to himself, uh, yeah, the deeds of darkness are being exposed and they can be weird and can be, look really disgusting, but guess what? You may have gotten too, too used to being in the light and you aren't comfortable with what's happening out in the real world. And the reality is, is we have to not just be comfortable with it, but the idea that we have to take people where they are and if they're dealing with these things to help them continue to overcome them that they might walk in wisdom our job is not to expose darkness we're not the hall monitors of life our job isn't to go around pointing out everybody's sin you you talk back to your mother you got drunk you you know what i mean like and, and here's the problem though one nature of it right the, the nature of being light is you walk into a room and people know that you're a christian and they're like yeah he's kind of buzzkill like why is he here why is she here And hopefully it's not because you're like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, don't, everybody stop everything they're doing. We're not going to do that. Put that down. Don't, don't say that. You know what I mean? But just our very nature of being there can be exposing them to what their deeds are, that they are in darkness. And so, and if you've been doing that, stop, okay, just stop, stop telling people they, they are lost. They're in darkness. Your life can expose it just by being, but here's the joy of it. You'll be around some that when you walk in, that you're part of their life, that they are like, they want something else. And this is my whole point. They want something else because you wanted something else at one time. That you too once were in darkness, but God drew you out. How did he draw you? My, My belief that God draws people. Yeah, there are individuals that just get drawn out. The apostle Paul, he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus literally shows up and tells him, Oh, why are you persecuting me? And not a lot of us have that experience. Now, some some do have that kind of just miraculous, Jesus like shows up or someone just tells them and and they come to faith. But I think for the majority of us, the, the normal ones are we've seen something. And actually, John's gonna get to that in chapter 13. He's gonna say, they'll know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. That I think part of people coming to faith are being drawn to a community of light. That they they see others that are living out and trying to live out this this life in Christ and they want want something better. They, They want that. And they come and they can see it and taste it and they know that Jesus is good through it. I believe that's why we need community. That we're not just a sermon with music. That we are a church, a gathering focused around a mission, a family set aside to serve and to love the lost. We need each other, especially when we go into exposed darkness. We need this idea that we are not the crusaders to tell everyone else how they ought to be living their lives, but understand that your very presence may be enough to preach that. But we should keep our response, even while we go through all that, our response should be faith. In the gospel. And we believe for God so loved the world. That God would love a sinner like me. That God would love someone that was lost in darkness. And that means that he still loves those people in darkness. And, and we don't know what God's going to do. If we did, maybe we'd all buy lotto tickets and be millionaires. We don't know how God's going to lead. In fact, that's his point when he goes back to say that the spirit blows where the spirit wants. Because it's like the wind You can't control the wind, you can't control God. God draws people to himself. But we, in a response of faith, help others come to Jesus, partnering with him. Today we saw how Jesus is the perfect provision from heaven for us. There's nothing greater. Anything we could have hoped, Jesus surpasses it. We saw this as Jesus talks with and has this conversation with Nicodemus as he, Nicodemus is having this crisis of faith. I believe Nicodemus actually puts his faith in Jesus at some point, that he actually is there and he loves him. So you don't have to have all the right answers and, and you don't have to never have a crisis of faith. But faith is about trusting. It's about putting your trust and sitting with your full weight in Jesus and the gospel. And it's the only response, the right response we have. We don't rest in ourselves and our effort, but in Jesus. He's the one sent from heaven to redeem us, to make us right. He's the demonstrated love of God. There's nothing that demonstrates God's love greater than Jesus coming. So how will you allow the gospel to shine in your life this week? As you put your full weight, imagine like sitting down in faith is like a button that turns on a light how will you sit in your full weight in, your, in the faith, in, with your faith in the gospel this week and shine your light how will you do this but no matter what as we do that let's pursue Christ on mission through community to point others more back to him Let's pray. pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we could just open your word, that we can just peel it back, that we could hopefully, Lord, examine our own lives and our own hearts. And God, maybe there's still areas of darkness inside our own hearts. God, I pray that you would allow your son, through him being the light of the world, to shine into our own hearts, that we would awake from our slumber, that we would, with un Without, with, with unfoggy vision, see him clearly, that his light would shine upon our face, that we would know him, and we would respond in faith, and in joy, and in mission, to make you known. God, we pray that for those that you are drawing to yourself, maybe even here in this room, but even far outside this room, in our, in our realms, and our spheres that we are loving people on, I pray that you would just draw them to yourself today, that you would help us, even this week, to be in a conversation about you, Jesus, as pathetic as we may be in talking about you to others, that you would give us that opportunity that we would point them and even declare that in in how little and how poorly we share him, that he is a great, wonderful, and amazing provision from heaven for our need to redeem us and to give us peace and life. Help us trust. Help us walk in that as we walk in the light this week.